go through their smart contracts, dive through their entire tech stack and understand how it works. You will learn so much both as a developer and as a searcher, and you'll find tons of opportunities that way. If you can understand their protocol before anyone else can, and in a way that no one else can, and if you can lock down that strategy first, you have a moat in information and data no one else has. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. Fastlane Labs, Trustless MEV. MEV Protocol, maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH exclusively on MEV.io and Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to mantis.app. That is M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Tagashi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with Joshua. How's it going, Varun? Doing great. We love to hear that. <laughs> Just for some context, for the people that don't know who you are, what do you do and who are you? Name's Joshua. I'm the CEO of Aori. You know, I'm really, really interested in Mev. My day job is building Aori, a high-frequency order book that's off-chain that settles directly onto Ethereum. And how did you get into all of this prior? Did you start in Web3? Were you in Web2? Maybe even a completely different career, not even software. What was your progression like until this point? Yeah, I did my degree in math in university. And then I got into crypto pretty much immediately after graduating. I definitely didn't want to go work in TradFi or anything like that. So I started playing around and chatting with some friends that I knew were in crypto. We kind of got really deep into market making on centralized exchanges and spinning up our own shop for it and spent about two and a half years leading business development and kind of the on-chain trading side of a firm called System9. And then started working in DeFi not long after. Started a protocol called DAMM last year where I kind of got to flex my smart contract. (laughs) After that, I started working on Aori. Kind of got into searching along the way last year. Uh I thought that was really, really cool. Started playing around with a lot of you know, searcher bots and whatnot. And yeah, I kind of noticed some interesting problems in searching that, you know, I, I felt like I could kind of have an impact on or kind of improve. I'm very opinionated about on-chain trading. So how I got to where I am. Nice. Yeah. The searching field is so difficult to break into, right? You can't really find information about it anywhere. And if you go into flashbots, it's like a flood of random information. You got to nitpick. I know a lot of people just go through the whole history of it, but there's no, you know, podcasts or any real valuable information on this kind of stuff. You just got to go into the nitty gritty and try and figure it out yourself and catch up with everyone or just find someone that also does it and get mentored from that. But how did you really jump into the milk game? and not waste your time and not make any money. (laughs) That's definitely true. I feel like I got 90 plus percent of the information I've learned about searching came from in-person conferences and like talking to people who were actively searching and talking to people at the companies that are providing infra for searching and things like that, like talking to block builders, talking to node runners, like that was really how I learned pretty much everything I know about on-chain searching. I feel like my kind of take on where searching is today is a little different than a lot of people's. So I feel like searching today has, if you look at like a lot of the on-chain trading activity, there's really only two main strategies you see run on like spot trading venues that are like the majority of MEV activity, which is effectively running DexXR bots which is a very, very competitive game. And then also running things like sandwich attack bots and whatnot. Those are all like super competitive. There's not a ton of edge left, right? 
But where I see quite a bit of edge is kind of on niche protocols, derivatives protocols, especially. My personal take is really most of the actual opportunity can only come currently from sextexarb in some capacity, mm -hmm. whether it's derivatives or spot. That's where I kind of see mm -hmm. most of the searching currently looking or most of the opportunity that currently is available. Interesting. And so you're really focusing on the sex tax arbitrage at the moment or? Yeah, not to like show a worry, but the whole problem we're trying to solve is right now the only people who actually can do, let's take a moment and like understand how, what the sex tax arb like pipeline is first, right? Yeah. So really there's only like two firms that are capable of doing actual size doing sex tax arb. It's really only like jump and Wintermute. There's a couple more, but they're not doing nearly the volume or the size. And the reason for that is it's so capital and human labor intensive. So to kind of give an example, you have to have an entire centralized exchange team who's quoting prices from every deck or every centralized exchange. You have to have a block building team who's staying incredibly up to date and constantly lowering your latency on block building bids. And you also yeah. have to have a team that's managing MEV integrations and DEX integrations and constantly price monitoring all of your venues that you're trading on and across all the pairs that you're trading on. So it is like an unbelievably intensive capitally as well as like human labor project. You have to have dozens of employees full-time on this. So it's really, really hard to do. So my whole goal is to open that up to everybody, open that searcher space up to everybody through basically allowing centralized exchange price quoters or liquidity providers who maybe don't have MEV teams to give them the ability to price quote on chain and give it, or at least provide a price quotes on chain. So, yeah. So why wouldn't you kind of make this private for yourself and why open it for other searches? So the, the main reason is the market is much wider if you can open up a platform for this than it is to just hog it and try to milk whatever P&L you can. And then inevitably right. someone is going to build a platform or open it up somehow where it's much easier for searchers to do this and then your edge is completely gone. Um, yeah. I would much rather be in the business of like, you know, building an easy to use application layer where I can connect the two rather than just like try to milk some P&L for six months before someone inevitably builds this. So, <laughs> yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah. So eventually someone does build these ideas, but they're trading off the P&L and one thing for another, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you just look at it, the market's already moving towards what we're building. Look at like Uniswap X or like CowSwap, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm a big believer that like AMMs are going to die and much faster than people think. And the transition will be to move to a plethora of off-chain order books or off-chain order flow venues wherein traders are able to choose a venue that they can effectively match orders on and then settle those orders directly on a data availability layer like Ethereum or like a Celestia or something like that, where they're directly, the trades are being done off-chain through like signatures and things like that. And they're being settled via some schema, like an order flow auction, like Uniswap X, via solvers or intents with CowSwap swap, or like just a pure order flow with us. Yeah, and that's really just for, you know, anything swapping related. But obviously yeah. you can still do long tail, right? With, I guess, someone makes a niche protocol, let's say a DAO. You use that token and you do some weird thing with it and then you eventually swap it on this order book and then you use that new token back into the DAO, for example, and then you make profit. That will always exist, but the additional big three will definitely see a new change paradigm shift 
it does become just order books. I don't think it'll all become order books, right? I'm a little nuanced on this. I think AMMs or AMM type platforms where you have effectively like, and, and I mean AMM in the literal sense, automated market makers, whether it takes the form of an XYK curve or a bot in an order book, there will be some kind of bootstrapping liquidity platform where you can basically guarantee price quotes to low liquidity markets. I very much see like early stage tokens always having an AMM or like a Uniswap, but for anything that starts to actually generate real volume and as it becomes like a mid cap and starts to really trade on centralized exchanges, inevitably must move off of AMMs or else all of the AMM LPs are going to just get murdered. I kind of look at this also like this is kind of the biggest travesty in crypto right now is people not talking about how bad and how predatory AMMs are for LPs. That's also something I'm really disgusted by. In what sense, though? Because they do make fees, though, but obviously they're not too high. Yeah, but have you been following Panoptic recently? No, I haven't. So Panoptic is trying to, like, basically allow you to short your LP position and then collect the fees, right? But, like, there's inherently this idea that your fees are somehow worth more than what it would be. Like, whatever you LP, you're technically short a call and short a put. It's not like a perfect yeah. analogy. It's like a convex call input. But when you stake an LP token or when you stake assets to an LP pool, you are both short a call and short a put effectively. So mm-hmm. there's this premise that the fees that you're being paid are equivalent to the premia that you would get paid in an options exchange if you sold the call and sold the put. But if you actually yeah. map out the Uniswap fees over time and then compare them to any options exchange in crypto, you're yeah. just getting murdered. You're not even getting paid like, 25% as much as the options are getting written for. So instead of LPing, just go sell options. You'll make way more money. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of a scam. <laughs> Being rogues. Hmm. LPing back in the day of the yield farming craze was definitely a thing where you'd make insane amounts of money. But now that you know that kind of craze is off, I am also very reluctant to help he provide i just don't see like the value of it you can just trade if you know something is going to go up hence like LPing, then you may as well just hold the token right you probably make more by doing that because first of all you have impermanent loss when you're LPing, and you know the fees are pretty negligible unless you know you capture the entire pool for example with like a JIT strategy just in time liquidity thing. Yeah, exactly. JIT is the only way that you can actually make LPing make any sense. Yeah, and if you're just a normal user and you're just got around 10k in it, you best believe someone's doing a JIT against you and you're actually making nothing. So yep. you're kind of just still liquidity at that point. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. If you consider what just-in-time liquidity actually means for Uniswap, you realize that Uniswap has basically do a bad on-chain clob. The, the way I mean that is like, some people are LPing directly into Uniswap and whatnot, but like the actual valuable order flow kind of comes through the form of like JIT liquidity because they're providing it at the absolute best prices possible. And so this is like the exact reason that like on-chain central limit order books have never taken off, right? When you have an on-chain central limit order book where you have to like pay gas to make and pay gas to cancel orders, it really makes no sense to do that because you're effectively punishing your best users. You're punishing your LPs, right? Like you're making pay gas to trade, which is ridiculous. To place orders that are helping you, you're charging them. In hindsight, is like so obvious. But that's exactly what a JIT liquidity provider is doing. A JIT liquidity provider is just like an automated strategy where like they see a bunch of order flow come in and they go, 
you know what? Okay, I can take this trade and this trade and this trade and the fees I get will be worth it based on the price movement. And therefore I will go ahead and do that. It's like if an on-chain club was super predatory to its users and was like, you know, you just have to submit a bunch of orders and pray we give you a really good price. That's it. Alrighty, bye-bye. It's, it's really this super weird dynamic. If you look at like how we got to where we are today, you're like, oh, I understand why Arrakis and like JIT providers exist. But then you take a moment to actually analyze it and you're like, wait a second, we just built the most complicated, completely unnecessary bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole mess. It's just not really worth in hindsight. And I feel bad for the LP providers because they might not even be knowledgeable of MEV and these strategies or what's actually going on. Like, sure, you have the ranges, but first of all, JIT again, your range doesn't mean shit if someone's just going to put like 100 mil at a certain point, take all the fees and just dip right after that transaction. <laughs> if you think of it like that and know the whole entire story, then you could realize how flawed it actually is. And so it kind of makes sense for the order book, right? Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like the fact that the user doesn't even know what you get filled at is like one of the most insane, like when you tell someone that in TradFi and they hear they're like, yeah, you just submit an order into blind into a blind curve and you have no idea if you're going to get a better price or a worse price. You're just praying that you get not just sandwich murdered. It's just like, what? Huh. Who thought this was a good idea? And you realize like they did have good intentions at the beginning, right? Like the AMM creators did actually intend this to be a good product. When you look at Ethereum in 2017, 2018, you can kind of understand why AMMs were considered like a good idea. They saved a lot of gas versus on-chain order books. It's like Ether Delta and things like that. But they've morphed into this tumorous thing that is like consistently like bleeding PL and like bleeding losses of its users. The the creators yeah. of it are like, I'm not gonna say they're like now lying about it, but it's it's a very gray area, very similar to that, where like they're telling people, oh man, did you know that you can stake on uni you can stake on like you know an AMM? If all of the trades are arbitrages versus centralized exchanges, you make money. You will always make money. And I'm just like, first off, that's insane. That's wrong. <laughs> I second off, it's like, why are you posting this like it's academic research? I, I don't get it. So yeah, I don't like that at all. I, I totally agree. And the obvious move for just a general consensus or using an AMM would definitely be just an order book, right? But I wonder how people actually make money via an order book. I guess there is no kind of liquidity provision. But oh, well, there is. It just takes the form. I mean, people make money in order books all the time. It's just you have to have an actual competent strategy. Your strategy can't be just like, I will take every trade that comes in, like an AMM, you know? Like an AMM, an AMM is an order book. This is one of those things I, I have to red tell people on. It's like an AMM is an order book. It's just an order book where the market maker is brain dead. The market maker is telling you like, I will fill every single trade, no matter what, according to this algorithm. I will guarantee you liquidity, which there's a reason nobody in TradFi, no market maker ever would do that or ever guarantee liquidity like that. Yeah. You just have to be competent with how you run your strategies, right? Like market makers in TradFi make tons of money. Everybody has seen Citadel and DRW and like all these guys, like Jane Street and whatnot. I think what'll happen and like what we're kind of seeing a little bit on the Aori side is like what's going to happen is instead of having a single automated market maker strategy like an XYK curve or like a range bound liquidity kind of thing, what'll happen is there will be effectively these strategized vaults similar to that of like a Yearn or like an Arrakis that are running automated strategies that are delta neutral 
that just are purely arbitrage-based market makers that run hedged delta neutral market making strategies that people can LP into. So that way you mm -hmm. can actually have a customizable strategy that you're backing basically by LPing. So that's kind of where I see it going in the future. Gotcha, yeah. How are you really setting up Aori for success with this kind of order book transition. I really hope there's a lot of new order books that come out. I actually think Uniswap X is like a step in the right direction. The protocols I really love and want to like shout out because like I don't want to just be negative. One Inch Fusion, Zero X, the new Uniswap X and CowSwap as well. Like those are like to me like the real cream of the crop moving in the right direction kind of protocols where yeah. you want to have everything but the sell of the trades occur off chain. And I think a form of decentralization is competition. This is kind of the whole thing about like Ethereum nodes. Like you want to have as much competition in the nodes as possible and in the clients run. And so like I see the same thing even working in favor of like off-chain order books, right? Where the more off-chain order books running, the better. And then you can basically break up your trades across multiple order books. And if any one order book is ever compromised, you know, your risk is substantially. So for us, like what Aori is doing is we kind of take an approach different from like the previous mentioned protocols, kind of minus zero X. We believe we're order book maxis. You can kind of think of us as like an inverse cow swap. So the way cow swap like works pragmatically is you create a maker order and your maker order is effectively auctioned off or bid on every 30 seconds by all of the solvers. And then the solvers all decide, hey, do I want to take your order or I do not want to take your order? So there's a body of takers who then like can kind of pick your order and break it up across as many DEXs as possible. On the other side, the way we work is we have an order book full of makers where the makers are all competing to provide the best price quote possible. And then you, the user, can come in and say, I want to fill that order. So, you know, it's much more competitive in the sense that the market makers and all of the searchers in our book are having to compete to provide you the best price quote possible rather than you submitting an order and waiting for someone to bid on it like a Uniswap X or like a CowSwap. It's just a difference in philosophy on like how you want order flow to be routed. Gotcha, yeah. Obviously, you can use your own search uh, on it as well, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier about like how hard it is to run Sextex arbitrage, like centralized liquidity providers and searchers who, you know, have access to really amazing price quoting to orders in our book and searchers who have access, searchers who would be like solvers on CowSwap, for example, who are like looking for routes across all of DeFi can fill <laughs> our orders and then route them across DeFi. So it's kind of a way for searchers to get access to real-time HFT level uh, speeds of price quoting of once Coinbase, you know, all these exchanges and be able to like lock in those price quotes for three blocks on ETH mainnet. So mm. you can, so like you can take a, mar a market maker can like the flow of like a standard order would be like a market maker who is, you know, very active on Coinbase. He quotes you Coinbase's best bid plus like three basis points or whatever. So he can make a spread. Yeah. And then you as a searcher can instantly fill that order and use a flash loan to fill it and close that arbitrage against Uniswap, Uniswap, all the DEXs that you want. So it's a really right. cool way to like port centralized exchange prices directly on chain without needing to run your own builder or your own centralized, you know, market making strategy. So yeah, it's kind of like a, it's a cool way to like break up the centralized exchange like stack there are the Sextex ARB stack into like a few pieces where each participant can, you know, make a portion of that arbitrage PL themselves, like both 
Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, the whole this whole kind of transition seems inevitable. But I always I, I think there'll always be, you know, V2. It seems like Uniswap V2 was always gonna be around. It's just so simple. And when V3 came out and now V4, people aren't actually gonna use it as much as V2. I think <laughs> I'm actually very bearish on V4. I think V4 is like a bad idea. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's just a worse V3, right? Like it's an order of magnitude more complicated than V3. It still has all the same flaws as V3. They didn't like fix anything from V3. They just took the V3 pools and then added like hooks on top of them. And I think hooks are actually going to end up leading to quite a bit more exploitation. Uh, I think if this is potentially like a huge risk. Like, of course, the only pools that on Unity v4 that are going to be used are the ones, you know, verified by Uniswap, right? Um, yeah. So it's not really going to lead to much improvement, in my opinion. I think it's just going to be v3, but like people are going to be much more confused about where to LP to. It'll definitely beat v3 in TVL, but yeah, I, I agree. I think 2 is the only protocol that actually has like staying power long term. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just so simple and it just seems like the general consensus is, you know, fork V2, create like farms, whatever, bonding. Everybody references V2. Nobody just copies V3, right? It's just, first of all, very complex to really understand. And then you have to deal with ticks, which is just, well, you have to deal with math. And I guess how many people really know math at that level, right? It's not very common, right? Even for me, like I'm not good at math. <laughs> I'm, I'm horrible. So I had to read the Uniswap V3 book to just understand it. And even then, I still don't understand it. <laughs> and, you know, if you're talking about a massive crowd, if, if they don't understand something, they're not going to use it. Sure, you can make a UI really good, but I don't know, it comes, comes to a point where mass adoption is comes with simplicity and quick understanding, especially in an age of, you know, attention grabbers and very short attention spans. It just doesn't really make sense, especially the time opportunity costs. Tell me more about your searching journey. How do you find an opportunity to capitalize on? Because obviously there's dozens out there, right? It's really just looking for a needle and an extra. But I think you can increase the chances of finding an, an opportunity if you know where to look in the haystack initially. Yeah. So as I mentioned, kind of the, the places to definitely get started researching, but maybe not to like directly employ a strategy because they're pretty heavily competed on are like DexDexArb or Sandwich Attacks and things like that, especially on like ETH mainnet or any of like the top L2. That's where it kind of gets a little too competitive. Like you have to have a real like latency or like a real edge on like oh. ca gas calculations and things like that. Where I, I definitely think there's a lot of edge is basically me and a couple of my friends, we have this weekly call where we just sit down and I'll talk for two hours about what DeFi protocols we found this week and researched. And it's specifically talking about like searching. The best way you can possibly get into searching or get into looking for really unique opportunities is to really? take a look at a new protocol, read through their docs, go through their smart contracts, and take several hours minimum to dive through their entire tech stack and understand how it works from the bottom up. Try to identify any holes, almost like treat it like you're writing a book report on like a book you're reading in college or something. Like you, you go all in on understanding every single piece of it. I was very curious. One one I recently did this on was like 
GMX V1 like a couple months ago. It was super interesting seeing like trying to understand and explain to myself every single design choice they made around like the actual smart contract layer. That I like cannot recommend doing enough. You will learn so much both as a developer and as a searcher and you'll find tons of opportunities that way. That's really the best way to do it is to like look for protocols that are growing or are new or you think have a lot of potential and if you can understand their protocol before anyone else can, and in a way that no one else can, you have a huge edge. And if you can lock down that strategy first, you, you kind of have a, a bit of a moat in information and data that no one else has. And you'll kind of understand what works and what doesn't work with that with that protocol. So yeah. there's a lot. it really is dependent to like entirely on protocol, but that's by far the best. Anytime I found a, prof a profitable searching strategy, that's how I've done it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. If you understand a protocol before anyone else, it's just a given that if you can implement, well, it also comes to the point of, can you implement quickly? Are you fast enough? Can you capitalize on this opportunity? You know, having a solid understanding of what you're reading and being able to read fast is a key component, basically what you're saying. And also thinking about, I mean, reading fast, if it's like a brand new update or something, but like, or on like a popular protocol, but I found a lot of strategies that have been around for months that no one's noticed. Like, <laughs> like there's a yeah. lot of low hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah, I think reading fast and also being able to creatively think as well, how can this connect with something else? Keeping in mind everything else that you've done is kind of the core thing. It goes with auditing as well, right? So I guess you can kind of think it as exploit development in some way. And as you, you know, think about it in some degree, it's really just finding a niche in a protocol. How can it interact with another contract or within its own contract to extract money? over and over again, given a context. And that's basically what an exploit is, but there's varying degrees of what you classify an exploit and how much money goes into it. But, you know, that's basically what MEV is, right? It kind of goes hand in hand, but maybe not. <laughs> Just because like an exploit is taking money, whereas... Yeah, you, it's, it's, a, it's a super gray area, right? Like there's some parts of MEV where you, you, there are like, there are certain strategies like I personally won't like partake in, like anything that's kind of sandwichy, I, I don't partake in. Anything that you would actually get in trouble for in Tradify, I think is a little risky. So I kind of stay away. That's why I stick to like mostly pure arbitrage uh, and things like that. And, and like, you know, yield boosting strategies rather than like exploitative strategies. That's really like yeah. the, the much safer avenue. And I, I'd highly recommend everybody kind of follow that philosophy. Yeah, suggest that. <laughs> not wreck myself in the podcast but yeah yeah i agree and i guess what is the the kind of process you take to build a bot right so obviously you got to build it from scratch are you building it with a template or you just kind of built one and just keeping optimizing add, add a little module if you find something new how do you really go it, with it, that if, if you have like a strategy that you love like for me that's like arbitrage as mentioned whether it's like you know funding rate arbs just pure okay. spot arbs cross-chain arbs things like that it makes sense to have like a structure for every strategy rather than a structure yeah. for every every you know unique protocol for example that's definitely the way i would suggest people it's like try to master trading profits don't come from being a jack of all trades they come from like really understanding one type of trade well and like this is kind of true across all asset classes um you know traditional finance and in crypto 
So I, I would highly suggest people like really hone in on a particular type of protocol or a particular type of strategy that they think they can be a master of or have an edge on and kind of stick to that and, and really build a, a bot structure wherein it, it can really, they can focus on that one strategy and build a modular enough system that anytime they want to add a new protocol, it's, it's really easy. It's just about integrating an interface in and then maybe converting it into whatever data format you're using and then okay. boom, there you go. That should be like the, it should be a question of integration rather than a question of like building a whole new strategy every time you find something. Yeah, definitely. I think it kind of overlaps. If you have the underlying infrastructure, you should be fine anyway. It's just a simple of like integrating the protocol into the kind of template, possibly template. Like, you know, if you already have, you know, the mempool bringing in, you can kind of just capture transactions and you can kind of identify what, what kind of transactions they are. Then you just integrate the new protocol, kind of track that as well. So it doesn't seem too difficult, right? Once you already have everything set up, you just kind of implement it, which shouldn't yeah. take too long unless it's, I think maybe like a lending platform would be the hardest, I imagine. Because you have all the different states, all the different borrowers and you have to keep track of the Oracle and okay, can you liquidate them now? You know, it's just that I think that's probably the hardest. But otherwise, it really just is an infrastructure problem, which can be solved with a node, basically, infinite calls, et cetera. Interesting. Yeah. And and you work in a team of searches, right? Not just solo. Yeah. I started out kind of doing my own research solo, but uh, yeah, I work with a team now as well. That's kind of how Aori, you know, how we got a lot of our developers. We kind of all were working together on strategies and things like that. That's kind of how we all started collaborating. And well, you just picked each other out out of random or did you already know each other prior to uh, joining? Well, you know, combination of, you know, hiring, working with people, meeting them at conferences, things like that. If you're just around in crypto, you'll start to meet really great people, especially yeah. if you're like active on Telegram channels or you're active on at the at conferences. It's, it's really, really, you know, easy to kind of, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff with that. So, yeah. I guess another thing is trust, right? You know, within a, an industry of MEV where strategy and IP is very, very hard to keep secure, I guess when you hire someone, do you, what is the kind of strategy you take to, you know, not leak everything, but allow, give them some stuff that will enable them to contribute? Because this is obviously something hard, like someone can join, they can sign an NDA, sure, but that doesn't mean that they can copy and paste to send it to someone else. Maybe they have like an underlying team that, you don't know about, and then they just dip, and you don't know they've actually taken your your IP. So I guess well, it was your strategy for onboarding. Yeah, well, that's where you need to have good human skills. You know, like I, I hate to I hate to see that there's no like easy, you know, like answer for this. You got to have good human skills as well as you got to have good programming skills. That's almost like yeah. most of the battle is like the human side of things. So I would just suggest you know pick your coworkers like you pick your friends. You know, like. Be very strict about it, you know, are these people that you actually trust? Like, if you have suspicions, you know, that they're going to do that, don't be around them. You've evolved over millions and millions of years to be able to detect lies and detect fraud. So use your evolution to your advantage, my friends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But obviously people can be putting up a front and you might not really detect it. So I guess there's always that inherent risk, right? Definitely, yeah. You got to be a fucking amazing actor to be able to like, if you're interviewing somebody, you do several interviews, you know, you have like friends on calls that you can, that they're helping you vet people like that. Yeah. If they can get past that, they're, they're, why are they in MEV? They should be in fucking acting. 
Yeah, yeah, I get you. I mean, Mev is quite lucrative if you can get it right, especially if you join a team. I guess you have a higher chance of making it if you're in a team than solo. So there's a way. If there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, only work with your friends, people. This will definitely help you. <laughs> yeah, friends only. Have you had any war stories while doing MEV at all? Or has it just kind of been like doing the same thing over and over again? Luckily, I haven't been exploited yet. That's kind of been like lucky for me. Most of my war stories come from like centralized exchange market making and trading more than anything. Mm. Like usually like ridiculous pumps on tokens, you know, like that make no sense that like usually just come from people's bots going just completely batshit crazy. I've seen some pretty interesting it's really fun like i find the most of most of the fun i have in mev it does not come from trading it comes from like because i run i'm a boring old man i run boring old man strategies i would suggest like if you want to watch like a movie without watching a movie go to like the flashbots bundles and then go like click through actual like specific bundle transactions and there's Mev in their uh bundle searcher and look at the wars in the blocks and look at the wars in the bundles. It's so cool. If you want to see like real war stories happening in real time, that's an amazing, amazing place to do it. That's really mm. cool to do. I would highly recommend doing that. You know, I was I was like watching. It's fun like going through and seeing like all these mev bots fighting over just like complete dog shit, shit coins. I saw one the other day that was like Jared from Subway arbed like some guy who he like sandwich attacked some guy in like a pool in like a derivative token of Obama Sonic 10 Inu. And it was like called Bush Shadow 20 Ethereum or something. This ridiculous name. I, I kind of love stuff like that. It's that's the kind of stuff that's just so like stupid. It makes no sense. It's it's really awesome. Yeah, just looking at the chain, right, is where all the action happens. And if you're really curious, you can just go look at each block individually. <laughs> That's where you start to see like a lot of really cool, interesting strategies and really interesting, like, I would say like maybe another really cool place is to look at like block building bidding. That's also really cool because you can see who's bidding on what transactions to fill what. So like you can see all the sex are happening in real time because... You know, these people are running like full on block builders. And so you can see what transactions they're trying to like prioritize mm-hmm. getting in the mempool versus everybody else it is really cool as well. How can you really look at but at these bidding wars at the moment? You know, because everybody uses flashbots, right? The block building side, not entirely. Like flashbots is, is quite large, yes. But you can also go look at like the best research on this has been done by like Special Mech. I definitely recommend checking them out at Special Mech. Those are like the best block building analysis I can't recall where they like are using or where they're getting their block building data from or they're like pulling it themselves, but I like to go through their work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so just, I think it's EigenFi. Oh yeah, EigenFi is pretty Yeah, EigenFi is really good. MevWatcher as well. I- That's like an open source one by Flots. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great place. It's probably the best place actually to learn about MEV in general. It's where you'll find patterns, what's actually happening. And then once you have experience of what's actually the output of all that. So you can kind of reverse it to the point where, okay, what are they actually doing? And you can just kind of track their wallet, see what's happening each transaction, and you kind of deduct a strategy from it, right? You can call, you can see if they're just doing a specialized thing, like Jared, where it's just sandwiching, or they're just doing arbitrages, kind of the wallets together, as you said, with X to Dex. And, you know, one more cool one too, if you want to check out like solving algorithms, is CowSwap solvers. Like going through the CowSwap Dune Analytics page, you can see a ton of data surrounding like all the top solvers and you can break down how they search for individual and how they like 
solve for individual strategies, that's another really good yeah. one I'd recommend. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's actually really good as well if you want to find the long tail because yeah. yeah, everything is on chain, right? So even someone that's just found a new strategy, if you're just looking up every transaction, and some you may be doing it manually or automate, you'll eventually hit, oh, wait, this guy, I haven't seen this before. Nobody else is doing this. Let me go and try and outcompete this bot because <laughs> it might just be a solo search with you know a very unoptimized bot. Maybe just like JavaScript, um, just got right. it done quickly right. to actually capture it. And if you see that, yep. you can build something a bit better, a bit optimized, and actually beat them. Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of copying and stealing, like just slightly one-upping people. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've actually done it as well. It, when it was kind of a, a weird kind of thing though, because they had original strategy, and I realized that you could do strategy in reverse, and he didn't actually realize that. I just read the code and like, wait, you can do this best. And you know, I, I started doing that. I built that. I'm like, wow, okay, this is infinitely more profitable than the original way because nobody's actually doing it. So I, I found a strategy within a strategy. Wow, damn. I want to know more about that one. <laughs> that, that's that's sick. That's yeah, sick. yeah. Like the profit he was making, I think it was like a thousand a day. But then once you, when I did the reverse of it, it was more of like four, five, six thousand a day. <laughs> that's a big difference. Nice, nice. Yeah, so that was like the first bot I ever created. I actually didn't finish it. I just got to the simulation part. I didn't know how to, to actually execute it at the time. It was <laughs> saddening because I was working on this for like a month or two. But it was my first bot ever though. So I do have that excuse. And it, it, it was my first Rust program as well. <laughs> first MEV, first everything. So I think I did not bad, but you know, definitely would have been better if I could execute it. <laughs> There's a lot of troubleshooting when it comes to building any kind of strategy. Uh, you know, a lot of like, you know, missteps on that's completely normal. But, you know, I think any advice for some new searches would definitely be learn your RPC calls and know how to do it without using, let's say, ethers, for example. I only just recently learned this stuff of, you know, how to send a transaction off just the node, like doing an RPC call, like a post request. Like on like a local node? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, wow, okay, how did I not know this? Because <laughs> then yeah, yeah. You, when you learn that stuff, the abstractions of like Foundry, for example, and hard hat, you, you understand what you're using in the background and then you realize you don't actually need them. But they're yeah, like simulations, sure. et cetera. It's actually quite easy. Just read, you know, like all the different RPC methods, kind of RPC methods. Um, that's, I think that's what I would do into it. Since you've been doing it for a while, would you, how would you kind of advise someone to get into it as fast as possible or like the best kind of pathway into getting getting into MEV? Like, I guess it depends on if you're coming at it from the Solidity side or the or like the like Rust slash like TypeScript side, like first. Like it, it depends if you're coming at it from the on-chain portion first or the off-chain portion. Because there's kind of two different types of strategies, right? Like there's strategies where you're like taking advantage of the code structure of the solidity and there's strategies where you're taking advantage of the way people are using the protocol. Yeah. So if you're in like the solidity side, you're trying to find like ways that like maybe like a oh. protocol is not like one example is so the like like if you're going at it from the smart contract side, right? The way to first get started is a particular protocol you're interested in, go line by line and like I mentioned earlier, like understand their entire code base top to bottom. One strategy I 
sadly did not do, but I, I only found out about it after the fact that I thought was really cool, was on GMX, um, GV1. Mm. GLP was failing to account for, like, open positions. Like, the way GLP used to work was you would have, if the accounting would only get updated when someone closed a position, so you would have to, like, you could actually monitor in real time the open positions and then, like, use basically prediction, like, predict, whether or not a, a, someone was going to open or close a position and thus find the true value of GLP at that moment. Yeah. So this was like a strategy that Jeeks actually patched because they realized that this was like fucking people were like arming this. And so like they actually directly patched it. But that's like one where if you understand the smart contracts better than the like creators of them, you can have a real... So I, that's one amazing way. Another really do is to like if you're if you're doing something like on like a uniswap or like a really active protocol where like the smart contracts are understood because they're very simple or they're they're understood because they're like very well docked you can instead look for ways like you were describing where like a bot or a searcher is doing something incorrectly and leaving themselves open to vulnerable open to vulnerabilities or open to exploitation yeah. um and that's really the other side too it's like it, it depends on which kind of strategy you're going after but like that's the other way I would say, like to, to start looking for it, it. Like first day, you're looking for things, you know, depending on what kind of protocol you're looking at. Smart con look directly at the smart contracts and understand them impeccably, yeah. or understand how traders are using the, the um, incredibly well. So yeah, yeah, and you know, it's it's basically at that point. So it, I think MEV is such a brilliant thing in terms of yourself, uh, because first of all, you you become a Solidity developer to understand what the code is. And just see yep. how they connect with everything, and then hopefully, um, cool. Um, but then you also have an auditing side of understanding the core. Okay, how can someone attack this? In this, how can mm -hmm. I exploit, you know, niches with other interactions? And then you also have kind of the macro infrastructure side, and bots and maintaining nodes, etc., tooling. So it it really hits everything. It's really a full stack. And then obviously the execution, propagation. RBC interaction, it's a kill chain, I guess. Um, or the whole shebang of being like a tier developer. And, you know, then you also get into optimizations if you want to be elite. And so you'll probably be doing it. Well, maybe <laughs> if if you're, let's say, like very short tail stuff like arbitrage, etc. But, you know, if you're not doing that, you'll be using Solidity. And so... Even if it doesn't turn out well, you can still get a solidity job. Or you've been building, you know, the the bot in Rust, and then you can get a Rust job. Yep. Or you can just draw again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, in my opinion, it really boosted my skills when I when I got into it. Obviously, super hard to get into, but obviously, anything worth having is yeah. is quite hard to obtain. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where people hate to hear that the solution is hard work and lots of effort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, no, why can't I get abs overnight? I just think of MEV as these days. <laughs> yeah, well said. MEV abs. MEV abs. You must have MEV yeah, abs. Yeah. And how do you really go about like optimizing the bots as well? Obviously, that's a core factor. This is totally admittedly my weak point. I am not a good Rust developer. I am not a good Rust developer. I'm mostly a strategy identifier more than I am an actual good optimizer. So I apologize. Yeah, I think actually identifying the strategies is more important than anything. You know, if you have a strategy that nobody else is using, there's no point in optimizing. Right? But it only really matters if there's competition so you can 
beat them the optimization route, whether it's gas and then you can incentivize more, or you know, if you're on a non-chain where finalizations, confirmations are incredibly fast, for example, BFC, Antim, et cetera, that's when the optimizations play a massive role because if you're not getting that data quickly, then obviously analysis and you know the finance is very short, then it, it really depends on the pipeline of how fast you're around um, because someone might get the information before you and if they get it before you, they can do calculations before you and then propagate it for you. So the, the worst kind of, your weak point in a system like that is slowest thing. So that could be like propagation as well. Maybe it's super slow at sending off the transaction. It also kind of depends on like your, maybe like the best way to describe it is like your strategy's latency requirements, right? Like there are certain strategies where latency is not as important as like simply executing. So it, it definitely depends on like strategy type. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the context of if someone else has the strategy as well, then obviously you need to be faster than them. Well, depending if you're Ethereum or not. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. quite interesting because you have a lot of seconds to do the computation of whatever strategy you have and then something else. It's really not about that. It's about, you know, how fast can you do in milliseconds? So more of like a high frequency training thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh. I mean, everything eventually turns into mm-hmm. that. Do you do like any node? customizations, running it locally. You know, I've met some people that run their own nodes like in their house. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think like it's better to, I, I like to outsource that to like, you know, things like block route or like chain bound, things like that. That's definitely like to me the the the, the smarter way to do it instead of, because I, I feel like my, my weak point is optimization. Right. So I'd rather just work with someone who's like done all of that work already for me, you know? Yeah. As long yeah. as you get the idea out, you open, uh, outsource it to the person. Really, that's the best way to do yeah. it. If you have a lot of time, go for it. But you might eke out like a couple milliseconds. It's hard to really beat guys who do that full time. Um, oh, yeah. And then have this experience with this one language. Um, yeah. Just getting to the, an elite level. You're, I, I guess it's really like using it as a, a tool for... It's like an initial deposit for... <laughs> for uh, returns, hopefully, easily. I mean, like, the whole of it makes sense where if you invest a lot, then you can probably get a lot out of it. If if you charge someone, you know, a shit ton of money or, like, a lot of money, whether it's, you know, hundreds of thousands, they've got to realize that it's... They're going to make way more from it than what they're paying for if, you know, their plan succeeds. So it may seem a lot... Obviously, losing one looked... Um, you take it to heart much more than gaining money, even though it may be like a little bit, like maybe one quarter of what you gain is still stronger than actually gain. Yeah, don't lose money. Pretty simple. <laughs> yeah, don't pay your employees, basically. Be good trader. Yeah. But, you know, we have reached an hour and I don't want to take too much more of the time. I would like to thank you for coming on and spending this hour with me. Yeah, incredibly grateful. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Uh, I'm glad we got to, to talk and make this connection. It was so quick as well. We'll just say, yep, want to come on? Yep, okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, very, very grateful to meet you and obviously the start of a new friendship. Likewise, likewise. It was a pleasure, Digachi. Thank you so much. I, I look forward to hopefully coming back on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely when you're a multimillionaire, you're going to come over here and <laughs> put me yeah. up the yacht. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. This is our yeah. thought.
<laughs> yeah, we'll have the Mev yacht. We'll have the Mev yacht. Everybody take 10% of your Mev profits and donate them to me. So that, and I promise I'll be a good boy and buy us a yacht that we all can tokenize and we'll ride it around the seven seas. You must provide <laughs> liquidity to, to get on board. Yeah. <laughs> we all exit liquidity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but for anyone else listening to the podcast, if you want to jump on or want to suggest someone to come on, just DM me at ScrapingBits on Twitter. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next one.